Teaching women's studies classes for more than 10 years, I've seen exciting changes. Right now, teachers and students face new challenges in the feminist classroom. Our students are no longer necessarily already committed to or interested in feminist politics, which means we are not just sharing the good news with the converted. They are no longer predominantly white or female. They are no longer solely citizens of the United States. When I was a young graduate student teaching feminist courses, I taught them in black studies. At the time, women's studies programs were not ready to accept a focus on race and gender. Any curriculum focusing specifically on black women was seen as suspect and no one was yet using the catch-all phrase, women of color. In those days, students in my feminist classrooms were almost all black. They were fundamentally skeptical about the importance of feminist thinking or feminist movement to any discussion of race and racism, to any analysis of the black experience and black liberation struggle. Over time, that skepticism has deepened. Bell Hooks, chapter eight, feminist thinking in the classroom right now in the book, Teaching to Transgress. Welcome to season four of Safe Topics. In this series, we're talking about books. And other things. Yes, other things, but we're gonna go deep on some books. Not like a full book review, but like a chapter by chapter review, which I guess adds up to a full book eventually. <laughs> yes, and we're gonna talk about anything else that makes us think about how we teach and why we teach. And we want you, the audience, to join us. Listen for details about how to do that at the end of this episode. All right, here we go. So here, Curry, uh, Bell Hooks is talking about, obviously, a lot of changes over time. And I think, you know, we have seen a lot of changes in our time teaching. I think we both have about a decade end or, or so. I think you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so so what? How, how does this specific passage and maybe these two chapters we're covering, chapter seven and eight of Teaching to Transgress, how are they hitting for you? Yeah. So, and I think that's important for us to like kind of set the table a little bit. So we're not skipping a chapter. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're going to talk about two chapters in this. And like you said, so a couple of things are hitting me. One, this chapter that that you're reading from right now, chapter eight, it, the, the subtitle is In the Classroom Right Now. Chapter seven, um, the chapter before it, the subtitle is Feminist Solidarity. And so I think the way that I'm reading these two chapters and especially that passage that you just laid out, it's the first chapter I feel like gives a lot of the why Hooks is thinking the way she's thinking. Sense and she it lays out, out yeah. in a lot of stark detail, uh, uh, um, you know, issues of race, issues of sexism uh, um, um, with, with, you know, a feminist lens in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and, and you know, and generally so in chapter seven and then in chapter eight, it kind of, she zooms in on the classroom. One other thing I want to say, because I want to hear how you're, how this is hitting you too. The other thing that I'm thinking about is this book. So Hooks publishes this book in, is it 1990, like mid nineties, I think like 94 or something, I think. So almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. right? And what you just said was 
and and we're we've kind of seen so she's she's making these statements 30 years ago and we're saying and then within the last decade we're still you and I are still kind of seeing within our field that evolution that that being more inclusive of a race uh, conscious lens which is I don't know that's something that I want to explore too just think about well, well yeah I guess the other way of thinking about it is the book was around 20 years old when we started teaching exactly yeah right and then so the reason that you know, a lot of parts of this book that really um, stick out to me is how much it feels like she's talking to me today, <laughs> you know, right? and she's not, right? right? And so thinking about the changes that have happened, you know, not just since this book was published, but since I started teaching, you know, it, it gives me a lot to reflect, reflect on. You know, I, I feel like when I started teaching, and this is just primarily introduction to sociology courses so we cover the gamut of like race class gender but you know we only got a couple weeks for each which is really unfair but then also you know those are kind of all of those issues they don't exist in a vacuum or independently from one another so you know you're teaching all of those things all of the time in a class like that um one thing that i've noticed is that students are a lot more savvy today and and understand a lot more about social justice issues or at least have been exposed to the language and the spirit of it maybe without the particulars and and the specificity of what sociology brings to the table right. and i'm sure you've kind of seen yeah. the same thing in social justice tilted or leaning literature right right so, yeah. um, and, and and that's like definitely good in the way that we can get somewhere further, maybe faster, but then also gives me pause to think, okay, if we do have that ability to go deeper, we can't neglect maybe some fundamental understandings and, and have some shared language around that first because you know the socialization process is so multifaceted like the, the, where are they getting the language and and the ideas and spirit of social justice are they getting it from social media did mm -hmm. they get it in the k through 12 are they getting it from their parents so i think that knowing the source of where that they've learned what they've learned about it from is important to consider because we might be completely um looking at it through a different and new lens and in most cases that is the case yeah. but also you you know you don't you don't want to ignore the basic understandings because you make the assumption that they're already at a place that they may or may not be does that make sense yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and the way I think about that, so maybe I'll fill in just a couple specifics to help paint a picture. Like social justice, I think, is a pursuit that comes from many different frameworks. Like I would say my first, like where I started to cultivate a desire to pursue social justice came from my faith, like came from my my, you know, experience reading the Bible and having relationships with, with folks that I thought were genuine. Uh, this is a weird term to say these days, but Christians, right? Um, yeah. And within those conversations, just to kind of, you know, link this back to hooks and this theme that, that we're starting with here, 
within those conversations, I find myself talking with folks that I've known my whole life and, and them asking, but why does it have to be about race? Like why specifically about race? Right. And so yeah. we might share this. No, we, we both, we, we, we are pursuing social justice. We're pursuing liberation. We're pursuing freedom, but who's included in that. And within the, and if, and I think critically then about the framework that I get from one source, like the Bible or sort of how I understand it, um, I have to now think about kind of where I feel like you're, you're getting at it's okay. But yeah, not just the terminologies, but like the, the, like what theories get to be included in my, you know, that being my source of thinking about social justice. Does that make sense? Is that kind of. Oh, well, yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of black liberation thought comes from, um, biblical understandings, right. Of emancipation and things like that. Um, so in contrast, my introduction to, and maybe kind of upbringing in social justice thinking comes from the gutter, you know, comes from fucking being poor and being uneducated, being, you know, in a immigrant household, being in a two language household and, you know, having, kind of a diversity of friends that included ethnic and racial minorities primarily right and in that it was like the the discussion was totally different because it was you know obviously it's about race we got that and now like what else can we you know explore look at and and understand um so you know anybody that I grow up with grew up with and um that environment that I was in that wouldn't it would never be a question of why does it have to be about race that's a given right now yeah and and that's kind of a really different type of type of experience right yes and and there so I can speak to just my privileged you know childhood and you know I grew up in a working class family so there's a lot of you know economic situations that um you know weren't necessarily easy for us to navigate I'll say it that way but but you know I grew up it's so funny okay yeah so I grew up you know white white (laughs) but with and and with empathy Uh and, and at one point realized especially as a teacher especially as a teacher in you know southern california um Oceanside, mm-hmm. that's not enough. Like it's not enough to just have these sort of idealized empathies or or desires for social justice. And I, I brought this up before we started recording. Um, it's also not enough to just have kind of a postmodern mindset. It's not enough to just sort of say, I'm gonna decenter the classroom and create space for student voices. Like my experience in in um, you know, growing as a teacher and evolving in my thinking. Um, I've just realized that, yeah, it, it is about race. It is about gender. It is about identity. It is about historical and systemic oppression. You know, it's all about it. You know, so, so how do I, what, how do I bring in those frameworks and how do I think about them? Um, and yeah, go ahead. I've, I've got some hard questions. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, so and, and look, I'm not zeroing in on you. I, I, wa- I want to know kind of generally what you think about these things. And one of them is how much do you think 
the social justice classroom. Let's call it that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Bell Hooks talks about the feminist classroom, which I think is really appropriate for the time that um, she's writing this. Yeah. When we think about the social justice classroom or the equity-minded or yes. equity practitioner classroom, right. that's more kind of the language of today, I would yeah. say, for this right. time, you know, 2023 kind of thing. Um, how much do you think of that is shaped by, influenced by, informed by liberal guilt? <laughs> of, of yeah right like like liberal guilt me, meaning we know these things to be true or we think them to be true um we understand that these issues must be addressed in a certain way however opaque or vague or clear that is to any individual and then um you know are, are people doing this because it resonates and it and it they identify with the movement, the philosophy of social justice, or are they doing it because there's pressure to do it? And then I guess the third one is they're guilted into doing it and their belief and identification with it is one that that has to exist with guilt as opposed to do it because she talks about and i'll bring it back to the chapter real quick uh, chapter eight uh, specifically she talks about that instance of a white woman on a hiring committee where bell hooks was interviewing and that white woman said you know we don't have enough people at the table here you know we're not ethnically and and gender wise diverse enough to speak to the issues that would get the most out of this interview to do justice to the situation, right? Right. And it was, and and Bell Hooks identifies that as not the easy thing to do, and this person did it. And I think that so that feels like that comes from a place of like that's actually how that person identifies with the movement and with the work, as opposed to making that that gesture based on feeling bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, yeah, <laughs> so all of those things I think are true and, and motivating for all, all, you know, if we think of our, our faculty body as a whole, right, across the mm -hmm. board. For me personally, I think I can, I can speak to probably feeling all of those at different stages, right? Mm -hmm. um, looking at my own class and feeling like maybe at just a gut level, like I need to be doing more. And I don't know that maybe that was a guilt feeling, just uh, I'm not doing enough. And so, and then, and then the move I would make would be probably to just suddenly ask a student of color to like speak, like, and therefore I'm being more inclusive, right? And like, so I'm not really in that moment being super intentional or, or, or even just, you know, you know, uh, truly thinking about who that student is and, and how they're now participating with their own agency or not, like if I'm just going to call them in and so not speak right uh, to this, to this issue, whatever it might be. Um, so, but, but it's, it's, and I, you know, this is a podcast where we want to be honest and sort of process these things together. So I think it's, I think it's helpful for us to ask this for, for me specifically to think about, you know, what, what has this journey been like for me? Um, I'll just say really quickly, and I, I mentioned this again, you know, before we start talking, there's a, a book that I read in grad school 
um, the year before I started teaching composition. It's called Fragments of Rationality. Um, it's by an author, Lester Fagley. He's a compositionist. And he's thinking about postmodernity and the tools you get from post, uh, postmodernism and how these are very helpful in the composition classroom because, because postmodernity is, is a framework that challenges the authority of a speaker. It challenges assumptions about you know, structuralism, formalism, sort of just the innate beauty of language. And it really, it values expression, right? And it creates space for expression. I found that really exciting and useful, especially as I wanted to be a teacher who pursued, I don't know if I had the language of social justice at the time, but I definitely wanted, you know, just access to, to participation and voice in my composition classroom. That was my ethos. Um, so I had those tools. But, you know, you asking me this question, I can definitely say as I became more and more aware of, of systemic biases of, uh, that were particularly, you know, um, impacting uh, men of color, um, women, LBGTQ uh, students, my first reaction to that was definitely one of like, fuck, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have to do something. I'm just going to like, do something right definitely like a <laughs> you know that's the initial move of course i have i'm really blessed to be you know close to colleagues processing things these things i'm really dedicated to research you know and so so i pursued those those resources as well but yeah i think i don't know what do you think how about for you are you well i, I well first i kind of want to get your understanding of um postmodernism okay and i'll just say that my understanding and then you could tell me if it aligns or not is i think the skepticism that that you know hooks describes here is definitely a core feature yeah. of postmodernism a skepticism to what is traditionally right that's that's a word that is loaded when you talk about this um traditionally subscribes to an idea of logic yeah. and reason because logic and reason and facts those those three words right carry weight in terms of saying that this is now something objective right right and postmodernism kind of says no 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 these things are subjective you're just not looking hard enough right, right. yes and postmodernism to me is also the validation and it, this kind of now seeps into post-structuralism as well, that that um, the validation of many truths, individual truths, um, you know, to, to counter a narrative that that celebrates, I would say, celebrates a monolithic truth. Yeah, sure. So the. <laughs> Even in Fagley's book, his opening chapter, he's one, postmodernists will say it's, it's one of those things that cannot be defined. And or if you're going to define it, the, the best definition of postmodernism is one in which you get like 10 people in a space and all of them say a contradictory definition. And that is the definition of postmodernism, that sort of collected dialogic noise. <laughs> I, think, I think mine was the right one, though. <laughs> well, so... So this is yes, and that that's a postmodernism joke, by the way, folks. That's oh that's yes, way. exactly. Right. But that's and that's really the heart of it, right? That's or that's the the move of it. I'll say, right. 
it's to be suspicious of anything you would, and I'll use a colloquialism, hang your hat on. Like anything you feel like is fixed and sure, assured, that's something you ought to be suspicious about. And let me just say two quick things about it. I think it makes sense to us at a gut level because it's it's the melu, right? That's the it's the water we swim in. Um, we live in a society where like we have contradictory news outlets and we understand why they contradict, but nonetheless, if you take them as a whole, like none of them are true and all of them are true, right? Well, that is the truth, right? Exactly. Yeah, that is but the truth that there are a lot of them. Right. But it's also not, right? And then I think that's the other value that I, or the other tool I gained from the postmodernist thinking, it's my, my discernment and my choices matter, right? So I, I could be simple and say, yes, there are multiple truths and there's no single truth. But within that postmodern framework, I can also say, and yet this is the most useful right now for me. And so this wait, is the most harmful it's, for us. it's confusing though, because what you say is like these choices, yeah. that feels very much in line with neoliberalism, which is, I would argue, almost the antithesis of a postmodernist point of view. Sure. You but know, the, the ability right. to have choices as an individual, right? And right. to make those choices and those choices matter right. feels like a very neoliberal argument. Does it not? I mean, no, no, no. I hear you. Right. I hear you. And this is also why since so since in no, since grad school, I've become more and more aware of the limitations of postmodernism, especially for the kind of work that we're talking about. Yeah. And it it because I'll and I'll say it this way, Sean, because this also speaks to my evolution as a teacher. If you were to ask me this question day one of teaching, I would have said ideology is not a part of my pedagogy. I will not be a person in the classroom where the students know anything about what I believe, how I think, because that is going to be some kind of tilt that I don't want pressuring any of my students. It's just going to be a all there is is space, right? That would have been how I start. At this point, I'm I'm very skeptical of that, right? And I am very I'll say I'll say intellectually not just curious, but anxious about what is an ideological framework that I need to be bringing into my classroom because that, that is crucial for us to read, write, and think and, and work together, to collaborate together in a way that is liberatory, that is fair, that's equitable, that's loving, you know what I mean? Um, so what I what I'm hearing though is you came to realize that your very presence and existence creates an ideological tilt. Of course, yes. Okay. You you can't say of course to something like that. It's, <laughs> <laughs> there's because day one you wouldn't have said of course. Right. Ten years later you could say of course. Day one you would have been like wait what? Well, yeah. No, I hear you. I think of course. And then yes, because I'm I'm a very tall, white bearded man. I think from the day one, I, I had that sense at least. But I did a lot of work that in my own mind I thought mitigated that. Now I would say, right, that's bullshit. Shave my beard and wear exactly. black shoes. Exactly. Exactly. Another way to say this, Sean, is I am just more and more and more humbled. <laughs> <laughs> Every year I teach about what I think I know about teaching and how to do it well. <laughs> <laughs> so humble. And uh, 
Okay. I kind of want to back up because yeah. I have a very specific question that relates to all of this, I promise. Okay. When selecting a text to teach, yeah. yes. which is a weird thing to say, by the way, when y'all folks in letters say we're teaching a text or we're teaching a book, like to me, I don't even like in my mind, it's like you're, you're up reading it at the podium. And I know nobody's doing that, but I just, I, it's a weird, like, I can't picture it in my mind, like what that looks like to teach a book. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe one day you can, you know, tell yeah, that's a different that, podcast. But, but that's, yes, a that's a different one. But the selection of a text, I kind of want to know process in doing that. Like how, how, okay. Because this goes back to the guilt versus identity kind of thing, or if guilt is your identity kind of thing and not you just the kind of general you like is it well we I think about my student population so I'm going to choose from this pool of authors but I also like these kind of writing styles so I'm going to make sure this happened like or is it totally like this book speaks to me as a discipline expert so I'm teaching it regardless of the identity of the author like how do we go about this like what, what what's happening yeah I mean, so my first move is to think about like what's going to be something that's generative, like like what 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 is so maybe that's a story that, like you said, speaks to us. Maybe it's a language, maybe it's an issue, maybe it's a fear, like a framework, like a lens, right? It's just something that if if my you know. St- 18, sometimes 15 year old up to what, 30, 35, like that age spectrum, uh, different experiences, different abilities, different identities, that group of 25, like what's that text that's going to get that group animated and wanting to talk to each other and listen to each other. For me, that's the ultimate, that's the text I pick. Um, And then, and then from there, it's, what voices do are important for us to be hearing in the classroom, right? Um, right, and 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 which experiences are important for, for to be shared in the classroom? And so, what I often do is, if there is some kind of text, then there's all kinds of ancillary text attached to it that that allow for a diverse range of approaches to that text, right? So maybe like a book critique, then, critique and support of that text. Is that what you're talking about? Both, both. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or like, yeah, it could be a story and then a similar story or a, an opposing story. Right. Um, yeah. So. But it's tricky, right? It is it is hard, especially where you and I right now are also reading a book about reading right now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just just the acts of engaging with text is also diverse, right? And so that's something to think about as well. Would you or do you teach books or texts that you, well, texts, I know the answer is going to be yes, but do you teach books that you don't necessarily like? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, because that's also super, that's another generative uh, 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 point of contact, right? Because in my class, we don't just read stuff that's model writing. We read stuff that's, oh, no, I, I would improve upon this in this way or that way, or this totally lost me here and there. That's that kind of, now you're finding your own thinking about writing, your own, your own voice. That's super important. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah, because then in, in saying I would improve it in this way or that way shows your bias or inclination toward a certain style, right? right. Which is an important thing to know. Um, but in teaching something that you don't like, and this goes back to the day one, no ideology agenda in my classroom. <laughs> when you when you <laughs> when when you're teaching that one that you don't like necessarily, do you tell the students, I don't really like this book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah, for sure. I like that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because some people would argue that that, you know, that that, that would influence the students to kind of not like it either, right? Sure. But I think if if you're promoting the, the keyword would be here agency. Yeah. yeah. And, and saying like, yeah, I don't like it. That you might love it, you know, and, and that's cool. That doesn't yeah. mean I have better taste in writing than you do. It, it just means that this is speaking to you in a different way than it speaks to me. And maybe I haven't seen the way that you like it yet. And maybe you haven't seen the way that I don't like it yet. Exactly. Right. It's just a, it's just an invitation to a dialogue to, and, and it's also, I mean, so I want to ask this question of you that you're asking of me, but let me wrap up this way. I, I feel like one thing that I, I do strive for in my composition class is, is negotiating values. Like what, to what do you assign value? Right. And that, that, that shouldn't ever just come from me. That should be a negotiation. It should come from all of us. Right. Um, mm. But you, I mean, like you said, you teach sociology, you're, you're in the thick of these concepts, the sort of similar domains that, that Hooks is speaking to here. But how do you navigate ideology, pedagogy, subjects, texts? I'm a practicing and always failing Stoic. That's stoicism is is the way that I approach not just the class but my life. And so that that's that's what I would say. And in stoicism, you know, ironically, there is that kind of pull or draw to this idea of universal reason. But I feel like when it's a universal reason, it's not just universal in that it blankets everything in terms of like this is the type of reason we should all follow. But that reason even makes space to question itself. So in it would be a critical component, right? And in, I think probably the most important component is um, the critical nature of it. And so, you know, with like, let's say postmodernism, poststructuralism, to look at that through a, a, a stoic lens would be to look at it and say, and accept it as a way of viewing the world without necessarily subscribing to it and without necessarily saying it's better or worse than any others, which is kind of the ethos of postmodernism, right? Right. So, so you know, it's kind of like the world religions. At some point, you realize they're all saying the same shit. Right. Just like in totally different ways. And then they are saying different shit, too. Like, don't get me wrong, but but there are some fundamental like treat people well would be great right and and um you know murder is bad i think all of the religions are saying that i don't know <laughs> so, i think so yeah right? but yeah. even when we murder in the name of those religions they're still like well it's not the best that we're doing that um again that that could be a different podcast where we get into this <laughs> <laughs> yeah get some get some of our colleagues that know a little bit more about that uh to join us so 
I would say that that is really the way that I approach everything. And so teaching wouldn't be outside of that. You can ask me something like that would maybe help me get to a specific example of that. Um, yeah, that, that's where I'm going. I mean, that's where my mind is going right now. So like the, cause you asked me specifically, how do you choose a text? Like, how mm -hmm. do you, uh, so, and I know discussion is such a core part of your class and, and you, I know this about you and you've said it before um, um, on this podcast that like, if a student is talking, it's like, that's it. Like they're the whole, you forget the lesson for the moment. You forget that their contribution is so how, so, you know, how, how does, how does what a student says in a moment, when is that sort of easy? It lines up with all this stuff. When is it challenging for you? You have to bring some tools to what they've said to kind of practice uh, 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 this sort of stoic approach to, yeah. I, I think, I think the practices come easy to me, but then the aftermath is infinitely challenging. And what I mean is if something is said in class, a sentence by a student, like that is the most important sentence in that moment, obviously, because it's the one that's being spoken and the one that's being heard. But that sentence now gives us a gateway to an exploration of metacognition and metacognition through the sociological exercise of examining socialization. So meaning they say something, okay, you're thinking that now let's think about why, how you're thinking that. And that usually stems from an agent of socialization. Well, mm -hmm. not usually, it has to. Mm -hmm. It has to come from somewhere other than you. Mm -hmm. And when we identify that source, we can then, you could do that forever, right? And then just, okay, where did that source get it? Where did that source get it? But I think the more important thing is to say, now we can really clearly see the subjectivity in the way that we think about things because the way that we think about society, since we live in it and we're doing this every day, it feels a lot more concrete than it is, right? Because the way that you think about race, for example, if you say, my experiences with these folks, I've had nothing but bad experiences. Yeah. Now that could very well be true, but have you come to expect bad experiences? Therefore, those are more highlighted than neutral experiences. Maybe you don't have good experiences, yeah. but maybe you have some neutral ones and those kind of fall by the wayside because the negative ones, you know, we have a negative, you know, uh, bias, right? Like things that are negative stick out to us a lot more. And um, are you entering a situation with a certain type of people or, or group that you identify or you categorize these people belonging to this group with the, in, with the expectation that it's not going to go well. And where does that come from? Right. right. Yeah. And usually it's kind of like, it's a weird thing because I want to say at first, 
you're not responsible for the way that you think, right? Which sounds weird, but then it does come to a place, but you're completely accountable for everything that happens once you realize that. Mm. Now, an example would be, you know, let's say I have a bias against Filipino students. I always say this because I'm Filipino. It just for some reason, it's the most comfortable way of doing it. Sure, sure. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, not really good students. Oh, here's, here's another Filipino. Not going to be a good student here. And now, if I think about why that is, and maybe it's because. I was picked on by Filipino students when I was a student or whatever. Now I have this negative feeling. Once I realize where that comes from and that it's not grounded in reality, but it's grounded in my subjective individual experience and shouldn't be applied widely. Now I'm accountable for if I perpetuate this, this bias and, and this prejudice and I, and I continue to treat them unfairly. Does that make sense? Yeah. So maybe I wasn't responsible for the initial feeling because I didn't really do the thing. I didn't even know that those other experiences were informing the way that I think about and act toward these folks now. But once I have that realization, once I can think about how I'm thinking and why I'm thinking, then now I am accountable for what I do from there on out. Sure. And, and that just to see, and to me, there may be a feeling of guilt, but it's it's minimal when I look at it against the idea that I need to improve and I have a very clear way of going down a path of improvement. So the guilt to me is like, it, it's very small compared to the larger task that I have ahead of me. Yeah how you hope to engage students in your classroom, how you hope to engage students about sociology and thinking like a sociologist. And what I think is interesting is, you know, you say, for example, race. So this is one way that you invite students to think about and reflect upon their own bias, race. Sure. There are lots of other, right, biases that, right? Hooks is talking specifically about race and sexism right um we when so when i engaged the equity-minded teaching institute they were specific like and 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 i thought kind of strangely so like specifically focused on just race we're only applying a race conscious lens yeah right and so sometimes so i guess my response to to listening to you and thinking about my own teaching it's sometimes if I, if, if I'm going to engage with your question about guilt, I do feel guilty. Like, am I supposed to tackle all of these issues in my classroom? Am I supposed to sort of maintain a constant lens on all of our identities and these different systems that impact us and oppress us um, according to these different identities, these different experiences? And if I, if I say, sure, man, I just don't know how to do that, right? Like it's, on the other hand, what I was saying earlier about if I have a text 
but I have all these other sort of doorways, these ancillary ways to get to that text. I'm intentionally trying to create pathways or space or whatever, invitations to, for students to bring that, right? To, to sort of speak to that. And not because I want a student to represent that group or that, that that's not the intention there. It's more, we then can have a dialogue, right? Like we can listen to each other um, and engage in what you're saying, that critical thinking about our thinking, because that's ultimately what happens when even me, a white man, and, and I'm thinking about this text in a very specific way, a student of a different lens or an experience shares something. I'm now thinking critically about my thinking. How come I never saw that in this before? What is it about how I've lived my life and think about my life that prevents me from engaging it like that, right? And we all benefit from each other in that in that kind of space. Okay, um, I think that we need to really pay attention to how the voices in our head make us feel. Uh -huh. Because we could read a text and it can like open us up to this area of identity and oppression and domination that we didn't realize and it can in a way it's almost like liberating and 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 it pushes you toward like wanting to act right and that feels good usually yeah. it, the the what you're reading might make you feel bad but then like the your own realization and and a clear path forward in your teaching and in your thinking that can feel good that could be deceptive though Right. And and when you have that voice in your head that's making you feel guilty, like you should have known this. It's been pointed out to you how you're biased in these ways. Yeah. And you're basically a piece of shit because you didn't think about this before. Right. Right. That can bring you to a whole different direction to lead to certain actions in a number of different ways. Right. right? Yeah. You can shut down. You can go forward with that and say, I'm going to really. I'm going to show them, show myself, show somebody that I know what's up now, right? Yeah. And turn that into something what you think would be positive, but it could be coming from a very misguided, yeah. negative place, right? Because you listen to the voice, right? And listening to the voice is fine, but I think more so identifying how you feel when you hear the voice is going to be really helpful for a reflection and a pause and a meditation to then better understand how you're going to move forward. And I say that because, you know, okay, so let's just take bell hooks here. Let's get back to the book in yeah. saying these two chapters, which I, I think it's really great that we combine these two chapters because they, they do inform one another, one in practice and one in ideology and history and background. Yeah. You know, my thought is, um, well, let me pose it as a question. Do you think that the discussion of like white women and feminism, black women and feminism and the divide that she speaks about, you know, mostly in chapter seven, do you think coming out of that has a particular message? Now I'm going to, I'm going to leave it that open because I could, I could go a lot more, you know, I, I could be very uh, leading in the way that I asked this, but I'm going to say what, if there's a message about these ideas, about these different types of feminisms, these different types of groups of identity, what would you say that message is based on your reading? Now, obviously we always be careful, like this is not what Hooks is saying, but this is how it's landing for us. 
so yeah, my takeaway from chapter seven, it was just that she's she's giving us the history, right? The mm -hmm. history of, of a feminist movement and the relationship between different groups of women and the historical forces that are keeping those two groups separate, white women and black women, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, which is specifically black men is the group that she identifies there, right? Black men being with white women, right? right. And and having that access to white women's bodies, yeah. um, you know that that has been a I would say a wedge <laughs> that has been between white women and black women is, is what she specifically um, covers. Okay, let, let, let's just let's just go back to the book, page one ten. Yeah. Producing this work, the, talking about a collectivist um, uh, feminist movement, producing this work is not the exclusive task of white or black women. It is collective work. The presence of racism in feminist settings does not exempt black women or women of color from actively participating in the effort to find ways to communicate, to exchange ideas, to have fierce debate. If revitalized feminist movement is to have a transformative impact on women, then creating a context where we can engage in open critical dialogue with one another, where we can debate and discuss without fear of emotional collapse, where, where we can hear and know one another in difference and complexities of experience is essential. Collective feminist movement cannot go forward if this step is never taken. When we create this woman space, where we could value difference and complexity, sisterhood based on political solidarity will emerge. Mm -hmm. So I guess there is a call there, but it's a call after those steps are taken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and the step being like, we gotta, we gotta be able to say the things that we are thinking. And it goes back to what you were asking about my classroom. You know, I guess that was the part I didn't that's <laughs> Thank you, Bell Hooks. That that is the critical first step. Can we create an environment where people can say what they're thinking? Yeah. Because what they're thinking sometimes is gonna fucking piss people off. Right. Whatever end of whatever continuum spectrum of political ideological thinking that you're looking at. Yeah. And and I've. And I don't feel like more so than ever, you can piss somebody off by saying anything. I don't believe that. I think that yeah. at all times, always, yeah. anything can be said. And then that thing can land so differently for people. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there's a lot, there's a lot here that I think it, it, this is a good place for us to start wrapping up, I think, because. Yeah. So I'm mindful that if I choose a text that has a clear ideological agenda, even a even an implicit ideology, let's just say every text has one of those things, but let me just say it this way. If I am not opening that up for discussion, right? Like you said earlier, like, you know, if I don't present the text as, this is something we are all gonna read and dialogue with, we're not just gonna be passive sort of recipients of this in, in any way. Um, if, if I make that move, if I don't make that move, I think I worry that the environment that I create for discussion will be limited, that some students will just sort of, oh, I think I see what this professor's doing. I'm I'm gonna sort of hold back this part of what I'm thinking about it for whatever, whatever that might be, right? Yeah. 
on the other hand, I have at this point in my in my teaching, I've been able to present text in that way with a variety of of, of, of pathways to it to the point where and I, I don't know. Have I shared this on the podcast yet that this this semester I had a student come out about being bipolar? Did I have I talked about yeah, that? I don't think so. so I was in a conversation where we're 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 it's a pretty dense text where we're a longer article we're, we're talking about has to do with how music influences us and how music is something we can't ever get away from and this student he's a white male he's been he's been pretty pretty vulnerable in the class um um just sharing um uh, especially in response to other students with whom he he's like he said i don't know how to talk about this because you know like i don't want to offend anybody like he said that a couple times but anyway, in response to this discussion, he he raises his hand and he says, you know what? I made the choice today to come to school without listening to music. And I started hearing myself think in ways I've never. And it's so weird that we're now talking about it. Like, you know what I mean? So like just random experience he had that day, he shares. Two weeks later, he comes and he shares again. I can't believe that how how just he trusted us. He says, I just was diagnosed just this weekend with bipolar. Wow. And Later, we're in small groups. Another student walks over to him to join his group. And then I, I come over to listen to what they're talking about. She also is bipolar. Mm. She's a woman. She, she uh, uh, um, uh, identifies as gay. She's a woman of color. These two students were sitting on opposite sides of the class. All, all yeah. Right? This now is a point of dialogue between them because of a text I assigned that is not perfect. It has its own biases, its own problems. Sure. But how we were able to approach it as and, and the steps we were able to take to listen to each other and that sense of collective, that sense of solidarity, that sense of we're all in this class and we're working on something and towards something together. Like I I see that in my classroom, right? I see that happening in my classroom. And and while I said I, I definitely feel humble about how I teach, why I teach, and where I still can grow, um, I, I am encouraged that. There's evidence that the work I'm doing is it's fruitful, right? That students are benefiting from it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that that's a space where those kind of things happen. Um, and and we don't, you know, we don't want to move past that too quickly. Right. There, there, there's a good reason for pause there. And a good reason to just be like, yeah, that was fucking cool, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and not like, and I want to be careful, like with not like with the intention to like reproduce that, but kind of just like appreciate the organic um, emergence of something like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I do want to wrap up by just, saying about these two chapters that I think it's really important for people to be able to speak to these issues and to talk about feminism if they're a man, to talk about white feminism if they're a person of color or a woman of color, to talk about black feminism, you know, if you're a white man. Um, but with respect, you know, <laughs> right. and, and I, that's, that's another one of those universal concepts that is really subjective in the way that it's defined by the individual or groups. Um, 
But when it comes to taking all of these ideas and that history and all of that, I think that the moment you had in your classroom, as uh, uh, which I think is a beautiful moment, and, and I'm glad you shared that, it also speaks to the time we live in, right? Where mental health, there's been a more focus on mental health now than I would, I would be safe to say ever, but, but definitely in my lifetime. And so for people to connect on that level, maybe something novel, right? It may be something new and well, I guess it is because it's, you know, you brought it up, right? You're, you're not bringing it up because it is something that happens all the time. You're bringing it up because it happened and it meant something. Um, It stood out. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that, and 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 I think I, I'm going to carry that 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 story with me too. Um, moving into the next semester, and just thinking about where our students are coming from and what that vulnerability can mean based on the the variety and and diversity of identities that they bring into the classroom. That's cool. Cool. If you heard anything in this episode that has you thinking about how you teach, why you teach, or if anything made you feel joyful or even mad, like you just yelled at your dishes or whooped while you were walking your neighborhood, I've done those things. <laughs> then we really want to hear from you. You can find us on the Twitter at Safe Topics. Let us know how you're responding to today's book stuff. Like, what did we miss? Or what did we totally get right? Or what questions did we raise for you? And best of all, how are you thinking about your teaching and students? We'll update what we're reading so you can read along if you want. And your feedback will shape our discussions as we go. We may even read some comments in the episodes to come. And not just the nice ones. Safe Topics is a safe setting for dangerous topics. That's right. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. We've never really asked people to do that before. I know. I think it's cool, though. We're ready to be rated and subscribed Yeah, and big thanks to Kelly Burnett and the rest of the Safe Topics team for editing, producing, promoting, and all the other wonderful backstage stuff you do. <laughs> and thank you for listening.